0: This is a Siku University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters.
1: Welcome to The Grapevine. Today we're speaking with Jacobus Forster. Jacobus is a researcher. He's also an RHD casual employee at Siku University based in Mackay and he's a mentor for research students. Welcome Jacobus, thanks for coming in. Good
0: afternoon, ben. thank you for the opportunity.
1: Now, just from those few roles that we've mentioned, we can see that you wear many hats. Can you tell me a little bit about these roles and also what other roles you also hold?
0: Essentially, about four months ago, we were approached about mentoring newer students, international students, and existing students, because there's always, you know, researchers do have a problem everywhere, because the cohort is so spread and nobody really talks to each other unless you get to a symposium or some sort. So the idea came about get funding, employ up to seven or eight mentors who has been through the system, has learned the hard way, etc. Um, so yes, I wear that hat where I assist, I've got, I think I've got 11 students I look after, plus another four from the past two years. The only difference is now we get paid for it. Um, then... Yeah, researching, uh, basically nearly finished with a second master's, which is master's by research. Wow. Uh, progressing probably into a PhD in organizational behavior, because the end goal probably would be lecturer-researcher, the combination, mm. but also carry that title of industrial organizational psychologist. So essentially, like a business analyst, you analyze people, Mm-hmm. to fit the processes.
1: So you would have had to do some undergraduate degrees. What areas were they in?
0: Basically, what I did was I didn't go traditional uh, university pathways because uh, because of work experience, life experience. Uh, in South Africa, I went through the grad diploma management, just stuck through the management uh, protocols, came to Australia about 10 years ago, joined Australian Institute of Business and did a daunting job two year stint for them to achieve the MBA in human resource management. And funny enough, one of the lecturers here in Urali suggested one day to me, um, go and do research. That's why I ended up doing research because passion for people and Mm -hmm. how we can improve the work environment and also understand them. Coming back to the other parts, the other hat that I wear, uh, the Mackay CQUBSA You can say president, as I want to call it. Looking after younger students, that's where the millennials come in. Um, Certain people, such as marketing, we've got an accountant, Tanil, who's my secretary. Mm -hmm. We don't talk much, but we do, when we engage, have that opportunity to lay everything on the table and uh, work from there, trying to improve the engagement. But we're not, as such, a student representative council. It's more an association, a club. So, I look after that for a bit. And the third role is School of Business and Law. I'm also the student representative on that committee and sitting with uh, the likes of Professor Julian Tysha, Deputy Dean of Research. Um, then, my associate supervisor, Dr. Lena Colley. Uh, my supervisor, Professor Bruce Bradeau. And then, we've got Dr. Muelink, and all those heads of departments basically. So, I report back, say, on a fortnightly basis what's going on, in terms of student perspective, in my world, so to speak, and then we, yeah, we provide feedback or suggestions, or it gets um, approved or not. But this is where the mentor role fits in, where we work directly with uh, Professor Kinnear, mm-hmm. Dean of Graduate Studies. She's technically my boss, and yes, we just try and approve forms, navigating Moodle because that's a daunting task, but they have improved it. Mm. So it's more a thing of learning that skill to navigate.
1: Fantastic. Operational efficiency, all that sort of thing. And um, outside employment from the university as well?
0: Outside, basically, I look after a few millennials too, because as you know, technical background, work um, directly for BMA, BHP, out in Pig Downs Mine. A big dust bowl, but yes, we've got young people there that we look after and train. Uh, being a technical person, a heavy diesel fitter, so to speak, a lot of people ask that question, but why are you still there and not full-time into a unique environment? I said, no, nah, I just love that environment, teaching. Yeah. Yes, you work hard at times, but you still have the young princes coming through. Fitters just disqualified, but they don't know nothing, so... You have to guide and you have to train, and it's it's the supervisor I work with always encourages me to work with the younger ones, and you get a few social butterflies, and that also helped me a lot with my research because you actually sit and talk to them, and you get insights and different views from apart from your uh, participants that you actually interviewed, for instance. And then I also look at those views and compare them with industry documents, reports, which is the formal names, content analysis, so to speak.
1: Let's go back to um, back to the beginning because it sounds like you've had a really diverse career path. And you said you you grew up in South Africa. South Africa, yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, where you grew up in South Africa, and a little bit about how you've your career progression.
0: I. I was born in a city called Durban, which is the old uh, English colony, Uh, Sir Edmund Durban. He was a, you could say a governor of that province and they still refer to today as the last outpost, Natal. Grew up 265 kilometers north, a place called Mpangani, which means gathering place of the Zulu nation, where they have their meetings. very mild, moderate upbringing, uh, real regional environment, had animals running through your backyard. Um, you know, you learn... What three, sort of four, animals? Can
1: I ask what sort of animals there were? Yes,
0: bush pigs, warthogs, especially warthogs, the little pumbas we know on The Lion King. Wow. And we had a few, um, they call them uh, reed bucks, which is just a, a general smaller version of a spring buck that... Lives in the creeks and that type of thing. But they veer they off and they meander through people's yards. And mm-hmm. and we had, in particular, the warthogs who used to just literally come through your garage, through the backyard. And where dad worked as well, for instance, for the government at that stage, you would go up there after school, have a quick visit, and these bush pigs will meander through their, their <laughs> little piglets. So it was, yeah, a very, um, how do I say, Tranquil environment, not much problems, You know, everybody knew everybody, you learn three, four different languages, you grew up with the native languages, uh, the traditions, like the, the Zulus, um, basically I do speak to uh, bilingual languages or native tribes, and basically grew up in that area, went to school, uh, did my sports, you learn life skills, and that will come. we'll come to that later when we talk about millennials and fortunately i learned a lot from the natives and then i had good grandmothers in terms of cooking domestication yeah. and yes uh, we used to cycle 22 kilometers to go and fish and i push bikes and yeah you come back with your treasure your fish and that's how you learn and then follow tradition whereas you go straight from grade 12 into military um, i had to, you could say, casual jobs during grade 11, grade 12, because my father always believed you work for what you want. Mm-hmm. You want it, you go work. That was good. And I delivered newspapers on the Thursday and Friday. Yeah. And Saturdays I would work in this, it's like a bulk warehouse where you just pack like vegetables and boxes and yeah. all that and the others. But it made you tough and, you know, make you realize what, what's out there. So by the time I went to the military, which is traditional, you join for a year, mm-hmm. I decided after a year I want to do a leadership course. Well, in the six, first six seven months, got a rank, became a platoon sergeant. Uh, they, they referred to it as a methodics instructor. The Americans referred to it as drill sergeant, but we weren't drill sergeants because you were more like lecturers, teachers. So you teach life skills, camouflage, um, health, survival. Weaponry, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that was a big step for me because coming from school, uh, sheltered in a way, but you had the freedom, yeah. and you've learned a lot. by the time I went to the army, you knew how to survive, you knew where to find water, how to find water, to survive. you know, if you're bleeding, or you know, a bit of first aid here and there. So, you never did like formal courses, it's, just, it's pure old fashioned values that was just passed on. And like I said, I had good manners who taught me how to cook. And from that, I decided to stay three years. And I kept on doing the lecturing bit, uh, became more specialized, got a rank improvement. And my final six months, I would say, was a real uh, breeze in the military because I looked after training plans, schedules, setting up training year. I had a team of, say, 12 people that with trucks loading, offloading. It's still hard work, but you were setting up things and, and you attend parades, and it was all like, um, basically setting up like a lecturer. And that's how I learned and found an interest in, for instance, teaching. But I've always been teaching, because a separate sport I did was karate. And it was back in the days, 1975, 1980, well, I was born nineteen seventy five. 1975. Um, when the Rocky movies were out and Chuck Norris and etc., okay. okay. And we walked into this uh, video shop to, to hire some movies and two posters with their boxing and karate. And my younger brother, you always want to be the boxer, Rocky well, Balboa. And I said, no, I want to do the Chuck Norris thing. And I kept with it till I was about 27. Mm-hmm. And yeah, grew fond of the fact to teach people. And, and I suppose from the military days, that, that helped as well with the toughness growing up and, and getting the fitness right and so forth. And then after the three-year stints in the Army, I, I would say about two months before Dad gave me a call because he was a superintendent in the government at that stage, would you like um, to be able to do apprenticeship? And I said, yeah, let's do it. I did the interview December 22nd. I started the next year, January, I think on the 5th, Uh, two years, eight months. Um, We refer to them over there as Heavy Earth Moving Mechanics, POMI Doctrine. And I did two years, eight months of that, Um, posted to an outpost near Bangini, where I grew up. So I knew the region, I knew the area, I could speak the lingo and all that. And I did that for a couple of years, got posted back to Durban, head office. And then I ended up in a construction unit at the young age of, I would say, 24, looking after 165 machines. Because Our happened? supervisor was a New Zealander. He fell ill. So automatically, you step up into that. However, there was a bit of um, conflict from older colleagues, older fitters, um, maybe some of the office staff. Because of your age? Yeah, age, yeah. stepping into that role. But little did they know that my background comes from four years prior to that, Dad, a good grandfather that taught me, they're all fitters. My dad was a manager, regional superintendent. And yes, I did that till about 2007, July, August. Then decided, and this is where the people come in, then I, I did various courses in the government. Um, so by that stage, I probably worked 11 years for the South African government in two different departments, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, Basically, that's where I said, I want to do HR, get a bit more knowledge about it, etc. And which I did, that's why I started doing certificates, diplomas, courses, etc, etc. Um, but university is expensive, so I didn't bother chasing money at 25, 26. Uh, then I joined the Cat Rental Store, which is Caterpillar dealership. We also got it in Australia. And didn't work for the dealership itself, but... Had rental store, and that was fun because they send you to countries such as Zambia, uh, Botswana, which I stayed there for about three, four months of stint, come back. Um, on a personal note, yes, I was married before, and um, I think that traveling caused a bit of problems. She was running her own modding school, and yeah, we parted, outgrew each other. But life lessons made you stronger, and then I said, I still want to study people. Because now I've engaged with people for the past, almost say, 10 years after that uh, through military. So you're looking at probably since the age of 17. Then, during my cat rental travels, I decided I'm going to start my own little business. So I resigned from the cat rental store, so to speak. Went back to the government for a three-year contract. Only did a year and a half, made enough money, sold my house. And went to dad and asked him for my birth certificate. And he said, Oh, were you going to holiday? And I said, No, I'm not holiday, I'm immigrating. So it was this big shock because I will be the first one to do it in the whole. And what
1: prompted that, that decision?
0: Well, I always loved Australia, it was Canada or Australia, but I received a job offer before Canada. And, well, the sports side of things, the cricket, no, it's boring, people, but. I can't sit in front. Of, I'm not a TV kid, so they say. So I can't sit for long hours in front of the television. Um, mainly, we'll watch the highlights or something like that, or an exciting event such as an international rugby union game, because literally, like Australians, we grow up with balls in our hands—cricket mm-hmm. ball, football, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yes, so and also the country lifestyle and opportunities, and I thought. Looking back at, at why I immigrated is because I was not alone but independent, knew what I wanted to go and do, probably wanted a new adventure. It's probably the lion spirit in me. I'll tell you shortly about the lion <laughs> and decided to immigrate. And yes, it was a daunting task. It took about seven months to get a, a skilled migration visa organised, but even shorter afterwards for permanent residency. Uh, worked through it two year space, became a citizen, and yes, um true blue Aussie now, uh, dual citizen. But, so, where'd you first uh, stay
1: when you came to Australia?
0: Not far from here, actually in um, Hanson Drive. Okay. Um, which is not very far, boarding at um, an elderly couple because she was befriended with the receptionist of the company I used to work for. And she was an animal carer, so. I had first-hand experience of animal care, looking after wallabies and kookawateras and wombats and all sorts of animal life. But coming to the lion thing is, when I was about one year old, dad took me to the local circus, and one of the lionesses decided to urinate on me, and obviously blessed by Mother Africa. But then the natives looked at that and it was up probably my nature, they gave me the name of the little lion, so, and, and that's the nature thing, they, they give you nicknames or animal names or type of thing, and I suppose it was just my demeanour, that type of thing. Although I'm a laid back person, I suppose it's just something they saw, and then, yeah, people always ask me, so, and why do you growl so much? And I'm not growling, this is passion. Ah. There's a big difference between passion and growling. Then I ended up working in Macquarie for about eight years, lost my job. Uh, there was a few of us that lost our job. Mm-hmm. And I meandered along for two months. And
1: What sort of industry were you in for that period? That uh, years? Mining industry as right. well.
0: Right. And basically civil construction in South Africa. And, and, and bit mining, and that, that's when I got a job in mining and just kept going with it. And then I decided, yes, I want to do research. Started research and um, yeah, life challenges. Mum and dad immigrated across, and mum with her illnesses, cancer, and so forth. So you look after these things well in a the way. Then one day you decide, this is what I want to do. You get your mind right, and we start looking at things like research. And my my supervisor, Professor Bredow, he's, he's very mischievous. He's quirky as well, but very old school in his ways. The way he explained to me how you do things and so forth. Like I never followed traditional data analysis software, for instance, because we used to do workplace investigations mm-hmm. um, in the government, and the way you do it is just the way you do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it took a good six seven months to get going, find our feet, where we want to go, talk the same lingo, etc., and learn the hard way, and. Yes, then kept going, and I think I probably hold the record for the most media appearances. Uh, in terms of radio, uh, I think it's nine news.
1: Because of your research topics? Because of the
0: research topics.
1: Okay, so this is your latest research that we've got in front of us here, yep. which is on millennials in the hospitality That's industry. That's correct. Um, previous research, what sort of subject matter were you dealing with prior to this? Or has it always really been it's about it? It's always this? been
0: younger generations in the service industry, but specializing in hospitality because that translates a lot into your retail departments. Um, you're looking at uh, fast food outlets, you look at anything service industry, if you sell a car, any, any human engagement, so to speak. Have you
1: worked directly with the hospitality industry or in the hospitality industry? When I was younger,
0: before military a little bit, and in the military, yeah. uh, basically you get, the, like I said, the, the, past, the last six months, maybe the year of that military service, you get the opportunity when you get based um, with guards, guard duty, in head offices, say so for instance, back into urban or near the rural areas where I grew up as well, and north near Johannesburg, you get opportunities to run the officers' mess, for instance, the bar facility, the restaurant. So you do stock take, you do admin, you do money, the flights, uh, employ the people that need to, all military staff, of course. but um, And then that sort of sparked that interest. Because I've always liked that food, sort of environment, and then also my cousins—they, uh, I've got two that's actually game rangers, and, and their role is actually just to take people around. And yeah, so the hospitality side of things, yes, I've always had that, and of course, grandmas who taught me how to cook. So.
1: Oh, lovely. Um, so, with your research being focused on the hospitality industry, have you had, would you say, good experiences, or were there perhaps some uh, not so good experiences that prompted you to want to investigate or to um, overcome challenges within the hospitality industry?
0: I would think it's a bit of both. There's two sides to a coin, as we know, because if we say the negative side of things, I would, I would say I started. You speak to people, and the frustrations that come out from the younger generations, telling you these things: um, lack of work, lack of sort of more. It's more. It's all monotonous uh, employment agreements, uh, monotonous work, uh, frustration, improper management styles, um, work that's not flowing, work that's not consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that that bothered me was the unemployment as such, because they often say it's to do with the backpackers that come in and they take jobs. And it starts reminding me of South Africa when you get immigrants coming in, taking roles and it. And I think it's actually the opposite of that. That's a negative side of it. It's just I think that it's to do with the unemployment rates. Mackay's got a 16.7% unemployment rate in the youth. They call it, well, ABS refers to them as youth, mm-hmm. but they vary from 15 to 35 years And is
1: that about. the millennial age bracket, or
0: just clarify what the millennial age bracket is? Well, to clarify the millennials, it's like chasing a cat made of ice cream through a steel factory, because there's so many, I actually got a spreadsheet, I think it's 27 researchers, prominent researchers, uh, social scientists, okay. and they all have varying dates, but... One that I stuck with is predominantly because I looked at Asia, UK, Australia and, and trying to find a common ground on it and for that part of it I used the people that actually named them, Strauss and Howe, two social scientists uh, back in 1991. Uh, simply they spoke, they got this huge theory about the cyclical change with um, generations where it started with like the Great Depression, went into uh, rebuilding like the uh, Cold War uh, protection more now because it's the Cold War that just phased out. So it's redevelopment. Then things like um, 2008, the financial crises, maybe 9 11, also significant events. And at this stage, according to their theory, it would be that it's generational theory, as they call it. Uh, the millennials are at the footstep of trying to repair the mistakes from former generations. That's why they're so prominent and their definition is from 1982 up to 2004 and it does extend to 2006 but it depends on the significant event and also that cyclical change mm-hmm. and they, rec- they suggest that they at stage one again where the millennials are in power positions now, leadership roles, government, etc., etc., trying to change society into rebuilding mindfulness, civic mindedness. You ask any millennial, and you'll walk past empty coke can or paper or whatever. And if you don't pick it up, they will prompt you. So,
1: what other sort of traits do you find are really relevant to the, millenni- the, the millennials?
0: <laughs> well, coming back to the general conception that they're entitled and trophy kids, yes, there's a trophy because you participated. To me, that's too general. Uh, they're not really entitled. It's more a frustration. And What I did with this particular study was is it, it gets it gets complex, but I divided the age group, I looked at the ABS, how Australia categorised younger generations: America, UK, Asia, and from general consensus. I stood up and said, "Okay, we're going to divide them into old and younger generation, or millennials." Mm-hmm. Now, their characteristics from that, I would think, is is they're not frustrated because it's work. It's they got they got a very realistic. The younger ones got a very realistic view about work. It's it's not all about they think they're above the job, and probably from values and heritage from parents, they would. Um, have a lot tolerance for rudeness. And that portrays to get the tail up and get frustrated and then actually start rebelling. Like, I've heard a story when I had a radio interview with uh, Tropical North Queensland, I forgot the gentleman's name, Townsville, um, mentioned a story about six or seven millennials in Townsville, one weekend didn't pitch up for work, restaurant had to close, why? And I said, well, we'll come back to that because that's part of my end. Result where we make proposals. And I think it's still to do with approach. And from that approach, leads to um, from the approach side of things is to basically the way I remember it is um, diversity. They want diversity. That's the other need they want. Diversity in terms of we all know. Hospitality industry is diverse, mm-hmm. and some of the tasks, um, how can you say, monotonous, and you do the same stuff every day. And this is where job sharing comes in, which is part of my suggestions as well. Whereas in that industry, you've got fisheries, you've got agriculture, you've got. From hospitality, you've got a particular hotel section. From there you can go into restaurants, cooking schools, and different schools, so people learn different skills so you don't get bored. And then you actually go and specialize what you want to do. But also, coming back to them, the um, the millennial sort of uh, characteristics is, the older they became, and I I think this is from life experience, like any of us who grow mature and learn from mistakes and stuff. they don't want to make the same mistakes as a Gen X, for example, myself. But they also see the younger millennials and the Generation Z just after them mm-hmm. as actually hopeless, hopeless in terms of they've got no manners, no life skills. Um, one participant said to me that they don't even know how to roll up a hose pot, a water hose. Mm-hmm. So this is their view and they've got to constantly probe them to do something. but. I haven't gone to the Gen Z's yet, but I know younger millennials are more like, they will go to older people Mm -hmm. instead of the older millennials to get um, advice. But they're still gonna be authentic in their being, experience, seeking, um, like I say, authentic uh, experiences in terms of if they wanna go to a function, they will wear what they want to wear, and it's authentic to them. Their style, their views. Um, I suppose it's it's probably the same as us back in the '80s and '90s when you grew up. You had like your own style of hair, clothes, etc. So that that's just how it gets added on. Um,
1: what are some of the benefits for employers to hire millennials?
0: Well, I would say what I've done as well is divided them into four age groups. So I would get, I've actually got four word files with these four, about 3,000 words of all the transcripts in it. So for for my clarity, I wanted to see how really different they are. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also to do with, if you consider values, attitudes, big thing, attitudes, why they, they um, why it's good for employees is, is they're quick learners. They... The older ones have already progressed into leadership roles, supervisor. They've got, they're armed with technology knowledge um, more than the older generations. Um, It also boils down to the, I would say, authority, where older people, the older generations are still trying to install that authority and they avoid that. Millennials avoid that and say, no, we're going to do it differently. We're still going to build our authority, but we're going to do it through compassion.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody goes with emotions to work, emotions, considering those needs, considering things like um, your values. Mm-hmm. Um, don't judge them because they're young or younger. And the positives I think in particular in the service industry is, is you get young people out there who has got more common sense, I would say, And the the, the emotions and that type of thing that you incorporate into a role. Because they always ask, do you fix the role or do you fix the person inside? Mm -hmm. I think it's a bit of both. You can fix a role with all these boring management theories. But when you look at these boring management theories, too economical, industrialized, you've got to start looking at what makes these people tick. Tick in a work environment. Not in terms of sitting there like a psychologist. It's going to take a thousand years to work out what's going on in their minds, or anybody's mind, in fact. But it's what makes them want to come to work. What makes them want to work? Because then it comes to preferences. And a lot of them, like the older millennials, the participants I spoke to suggested that a preference is a preference, but at the end of the day, it's a preference. We do it because We want to do it, we enjoy what we do, we learn from mistakes. So they're very, uh, like I say, determined, self-determined, which led to me chasing my tail for a few months to find the right theory to actually talk about it. Then the younger versions were, or the younger cohort of the millennials is, is, yeah, like like I suggested earlier, was low tolerance for rudeness. Mm Like, yeah, okay, everybody's got a low tolerance, but I think there's people that I've met the younger generations that, that's that got the longest span of patients I've ever seen, and people provoke them and provoke them, and they just keep going. But the younger ones, which, which is the debatable part between Gen Z and Millennials, is the age group, there's a overlap 18 to 20, are still yet to find somebody to define who are Gen Zs, but they say generally just after Millennials. Mm-hmm. But this is the, the other thing. Um, coming back to positives or benefits for employees is, because of that cyclical change, from Strauss and Howard that suggested in, in the rebuilding phase again, millennials have been around since 1980, 82, according to definitions from prominent uh, social scientists. And they stipulate that a generation is generally 20 years, 20 years span. That's why they said, whoop, Gen Z's from here, 2004 on 2006. But the millennials have been surpassing that 20 years because they've been building and building and building. And I believe in that theory. So we at this stage, yes, we've got to the all out in the world. We've got terrorism, social issues, rebuilding. But it's getting there. And they've got that technical know-how. Coming back into a regional context, I think, I think it's up to bigger hotel groups, for instance. And in government and regional government to invest more in family-owned businesses, for instance, mm-hmm. and younger uh, entrepreneurs, for instance, who wants to start a fancy, funky restaurant, mm-hmm. like I myself wanted to start something probably in Rockhampton at some stage, something African-themed, but a bit of a cocktail bar type of thing. Although I'm a Gen X, I still look at them and I'll go, whoa, what appeals to you? See, so you've got to start looking at how they use their money. What appeals to them? What is trendy, etc., etc. A lot of people spoke about it, but it falls on deaf ears because managers still do not, and it's been proven, do not actually know how to approach it. And although the millennials that I've got, uh, interviewed suggested that the approach to it and sustainability of relationships will ensure business success, so if managers can understand or tweak or harness into that and also tap into that and, and you know it's, it's also to do with the values and the authority and the emotion because there's always that saying leave your emotions at home and bring them to work mm-hmm. I disagree you wake up you come to work you've got emotions you go home etc etc you do a task and, and that's where for instance they say we're going to change that bottle make it a green bottle because it will sell better it looks better for instance or we're going to make that dish different. Mm -hmm. And the general consensus that I received competence-wise, which is one of those psychological motivational needs, is that they just want to satisfy. They just want to present something good quality, authentic, um, learn from their mistakes, but make people happy. And the older uh, millennials, between 30 and I would say 35, told me straight up it's to do with... Way we want to present something to them. We see people walk into a restaurant, most of them are still working in restaurants, and one's actually an owner. We see people down, they're sad, they're tired. But at the moment you bring them a dish that they actually like, face goes open, yeah, approachable, talk, etc. etc. Well, that's
1: all good attributes that an employer would want to have in their organization. But how do employers keep? Good people, and how do they keep them motivated? As you said, they they have that need for motivation. You mentioned diversity of skills, so um, yes, you know, so they're not feeling um, caught up in the same job, and that routine doesn't get to them. So diversity of um, their skill base. You mentioned job sharing was another strategy. Job sharing between strategies, along with that.
0: Well, what I did was as well is um, the notion of meetings, like. Coming back to the HR part of things, performance management, which is these days only three months, six months, twelve months. Younger generations, like millennials, want it on a weekly basis. They want that weekly performance review. The other thing is as well, is they prefer casual chats, meetings. Yes. So in essence, that should be incorporated. Yes, there's a lot of waste of time, people say, sitting there just chit chatting. But if you consider all formal meetings, board meetings. How long does that take? Mm. What comes out of it? What's the outcomes of that? They prefer short, sweet, boom. And this regular. is what we're going to do. Versatile, you know, this is what we're going to do today. This is on the table, let's do it. So it's, they don't like drawn out discussions, meetings. Short and sweet, regular, probably once, twice a day, depending on who you are. So you've got a day in the morning, and maybe in the evening if people come in to take a the night draw. So, In terms of that, that's what they prefer. And in HR perspective, what I've done is to draft a suggested worksheet. Um, When you sit and actually interview the younger people, talk to them, have a meeting, etc., then you can incorporate that into a training program. Whereas you can actually teach leaders, supervisors, managers, all these skills, values, etc., the needs that they actually require and how to approach because approaching them, they can almost say that the young ones are a bit more oversensitive, I suppose. That's why they low-tolerance for um, rudeness, yep. but the older ones have learned more and they're more composed, etc, but they're more determined. They run their own businesses, they want to do things independently. Uh, family wars, yeah, I suppose like the older generations want family is a good job and that are they more this is where the emotion side comes in more compassionate very uh, compassionate people very um, helpful if somebody struggle that will help guide not like the old I would suggest um, about 10 20 years ago if you struggle get <laughs> yeah sink or swim get a, get a bashing or you get fired <laughs> either or so at the end of the day, it's, it's still... The thing is, it's just they misunderstood. That's far as I believe. That's fascinating. And
1: do, you, do you, on a personal note, do you find, do you have millennials in your life and do you find that their personality attributes are in line with your research findings?
0: Well, I work with a lot of millennials, I suppose, on, in, in the mining industry and, and of course, at CQU with the student representative um, the, the association. And then we've got a lot of millennials, yes, it, it, some of them, to the T, identical to what's out there in terms of literature, what i found, but there's unique cases where it's just out of this world. So
1: not everyone fits the supposed not, stereotype? It's is? not
0: stereotype, no, because when you look at it and you actually talk to them, it's you find it's dif- different personalities, um, they function differently. and. As generational theory suggests, values remain the same or being inherited from parents across generations. But it also has shown between the younger and the older millennials that I've interviewed that there is a difference. There is a difference in values, there's different attitudes, there's different emotions, the way they apply themselves, their functioning, uh, their performance views, etc. And yes, I do have a, a partner who's a millennial, she's um, 33. And when I look at her, totally different. I'm the one that talks a lot. Mm. She's the quiet, dangerous one. Very laid back, you. laid back.
1: Jacobus, would you say that your research is perhaps your life's greatest achievement to date? Or what would you say you're most proud of?
0: Well, the thing that I'm the most proud of is still having parents that at age, well, I'm 43, so it must be 43 years married by now, I believe, that they're still around to advise and encourage me. Well, Dad keeps me alive when I get out of board a bit, but her mother who's a retired human resource management lecturer or teacher, so to speak, in the bank, um, she worked for the Allied Banks of South Africa, which is a... They call it APSA at this stage, but they link with Westpac, so they've got an association international. But she's always instilled that people um, aspect, and always encouraging and be respectful to people. And I think, yeah, that that is that I still have parents around to actually tap into, although you know parents can drive you nuts I would say mm-hmm. at times, uh, needs, etc. But that's life. And mm. yeah, and then of yeah, of course, achieving a master of business administration. But those are all superficial things. Uh, to me it's more about real people stuff, like your family, and parents, although my brother's still in South Africa. It's yeah, keeping me on track and advising me.
1: And where to from here for you? What's your next step?
0: We'll hopefully, finish this off by April next year. This master's degree, uh, busy with conference publication, not very busy, and then progress into a PhD. Wow. Um, same topic, same generation, but just a bit of a comparison mm-hmm. between what we know, what I found, what I still got to write about, because there's a plethora of stuff I still got to analyze. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of studying people is you can run back and forth your your analysis and you discover new things, you go, whoa. So then I decided to take self-determination theory, and you're probably aware of the six sub-theories, which focus on value-related motivation, so to speak, and take those six theories and apply them into a deeper meaning, so to speak, and see, and and look at a comparison between the Millennials, what we know for the past 25 years, and what do we know about Gen Z, who's entering the workforce next year, the year after. But I think some of them are already in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So then you do a little comparison study, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And why? Because we should be able to improve training programs, work environments. Um, Another belief, which is very, I would say, is is a hot topic, is casual employment, and how we can improve that conditions. You can still employ casually, but leave entitlements. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, if, if the young girl's pregnant, for example, uh, parental leave uh, issues, that that's being in the news. So, it would be more in terms of advising with this PhD and after, I'll probably do a second PhD too, wow. if I get the opportunity and just improve training programs. And then, old, I would say older, 55, (laughs) return, maybe before, return back and start teaching people about people.
2: Mm,
1: Sounds fantastic. I think that over the next few years, we'll probably have a few more conversations about your work, which is really exciting. And how do you find balance in your life? Do you have any hobbies? You've got so much going on in the work and the study sphere. What do you do for you?
0: Well, for me, basically, I love um, walking Yangala, my mountains, that type of thing, the occasional beach walk, uh, play golf predominantly. Um, it's a very individual sport. They do say it's not, it's a stress reliever, but I don't think it's very very much a stress reliever in terms of when you play heat and search on a Sunday morning, trying to look for balls at six o'clock in the morning. And then of course I love um, writing, uh, Separate to academic, right? Whereas you just plot down like a journal, and you write your own little story, your own bio. And yeah, I'm still working on an unofficial cookbook. Ooh. Yeah. What sort
1: of um? Oh, uh, Saturday theme, is cuisine.
0: Fantastic. I can't tell you the name yet. Okay. But um, yeah, a lot of people laughed at me. I suppose two years ago when I suggested it, and they said, "Diesel footer writing a cookbook." I'm like, yeah, anything's possible.
1: You have to get back to me when you've written
0: the cookbook. Yep. I need to have an advanced copy. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I like those bits and pieces. And it's more like a lot of people look at you and say, where do you actually fit in life at yes. uni? That yeah. type of thing. I'm, like, I'm somewhat a social scientist, but I'm also um, an HR person. So you're a people's person We look after the well-being and the welfare of people, which I've been doing since age 17 in a military instructor. But at the end of the day, it's still, how are we going to convince local authorities, governments, mm-hmm. that we need to invest more so to keep your youth, your generations, your younger people in town?
1: Well, I'm going to miss um, some of the hats that you wear, but I just want to say a very special thank you to you, Jacobus, um, researcher, um, sick union employer, mentor, um, <laughs> and also, of course, cookbook writer and um, yep. home chef yep. and much, much more. Thanks so much for your time today. I know how busy you are and I know you do have another engagement to get to, but is there anything else that you would like to, to add before you rush off to your next meeting?
0: Yes, my little motto love. It's more like in terms of borrowed from Einstein, back in the day, where it's education, and this is what i will probably installed as Electra, education, is not the learning of facts, but actually the way to think and then apply that thinking in daily life, literally. Love it. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.